Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so happy today to have a friend of mine on. Um, Brian Fry is the Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. Brian got his BA from Berkeley, his uh, JD from NYU, but he also has a Master of Fine Arts from the San Francisco Art Institute. I don't know if there are many law professors who have done that. He clerked for the Ninth Circuit. He clerked for the Washington Supreme Court. He worked at Sullivan and Cromwell, something that those of us who know Brian can't really imagine all that well, but uh, I'm sure he did well there. He has his own podcast called Ipsy Dixit, which is awesome and has like 10,000 episodes. And he very nicely has had me on once or twice. Brian, welcome to Supreme Myths. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's, 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 I'm delighted to be here. I am so excited to talk to you about so many things. Um, so I know nothing about copyright. And when I say, as I should say, Brian teaches IP, copyright, I think civil procedure is also somewhere in that list. All right. So I usually have con law profs on or, you know, judges and we argue and debate. I know nothing about copyrights except for one thing. I have to mention Judge Posner once every podcast. So this is my one Judge Posner, retired Judge Posner mention. I once asked him this question. He gave me a long answer and I still don't understand it because Posner was a pretty good IP person, as you know. Um so Martin Luther King gives this speech uh, in 1963, changes the world, world famous, hundreds of thousands of people there, the I've Got a Dream speech. He's in public. He's not being paid, to the best of our knowledge, and it's going out all over TV everywhere. But I'm told I can't take that speech and play it for my class without the permission of the King family. How can that be right? He was in a public place talking to hundreds of thousands of people, not being paid for it on a matter of current events. Do we have a First Amendment or what? Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would I would put that question two different ways. I mean, my initial answer would be it's not entirely clear to me that it's right that you can't use it in class. In fact, I think the better answer really is that you probably can, or at least you can use the parts that are relevant to your class. Actually, Brian, I'm sorry, I misspoke. They have, I think it can be used for educational purposes, but parts of it can, but not the whole thing, I think. Yeah, and and still I think that that that's not true. Like if you needed your students to listen to the whole speech in order for it to have the relevant educational impact, then um, I think that the fair use exception to copyright protection and specifically copyright protection for public performances um, would would protect that kind of a use. And that's really what um, copyright uses to try to, um, to to try to recognize and respect those kinds of First Amendment concerns that you point out, which you know, as the Supreme Court has recognized, and I think is kind of well understood, that there's a kind of fundamental free speech First Amendment tension in creating copyright protection in the first place. I mean, as I say to my students, the real irony of copyright is that the ostensible purpose for creating copyright in the first place is in order to provide an incentive for people to generate new works of authorship. In other words, the purpose of copyright is in order to is is to incentivize speech. But ironically, the way we incentivize people to speak, the way the government incentivizes people to speak through copyright is by enabling them to force other people to shut up, essentially. <laughs> we'll, right? get that. we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, but I, I want to go back to King for a minute, though. Yeah. So I guess I am really confused by this. Uh, let's take a, a speech by President Biden on the campaign trail in 2020. And it's a 30-minute speech. 
broadcast by CNN to an audience of 8,000 in some arena somewhere. Mm-hmm. He doesn't own that speech, does he? Well, so Biden would be a special example, right? Because copyright, uh, the, the copyright statute has written into it a special exception for works created by employees of the federal government. And so for the purpose of that speech, Biden would be an employee of the federal government as the president. And therefore, the speech he, he wrote or had written for him. All right, let me change the hypo, Brian. What about Trump before he's president? He's not, he's not. He's oh, not. So, so then Trump's a private party. And interestingly, even if it were, say, the governor of Georgia, right? So that that first, that that exception to copyright protection for government yeah. employees only implies to federal government employees. Okay. So if it was the governor of Georgia, for example, yeah. unless Georgia law said otherwise, yeah. in theory, the governor of Georgia could claim copyright protection. But, it, but it's a public speech to public people with, with, with no profit. Like, I don't understand. Right, right. Well, copyright ultimately, at least under kind of the Copyright Act of 1976, which is the one currently in force and which was intended to effectively bring United States copyright law into harmonization with international copyright law. It's kind of indifferent to the context in which a work is created, at least when it comes to prima facie copyright protection. So for better or for worse, the way we've structured copyright law is we have kind of a default assumption that basically everything is protected That's by dumb. It's bananas. It's totally bananas. And we kind of do it, what we do is we work it backwards, right? So the assumption is everything initially is going to be protected by copyright. And then we have a whole bunch of exceptions to protect situations where we think that people ought to be able to use works without permission. Now, those exceptions are generally pretty broad when it comes to the kinds of works you're talking about, right? So a speech of public interest delivered by an important person to a large number of people, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing where most of the uses that you would want to make of it are going to fall within this fair use exception. Let me me stop you there, hmm? though. So if a for-profit TV show wanted to use that speech from 1963, I'm pretty sure it can't. Again, difficult question, right? Historically, the answer was functionally yes, right? Because the kind of assumption was that uh, non-commercial uses were – you know, typically falling within the scope of fair use protection and therefore protected from from copyright infringement litigation. But commercial uses were not. And therefore, if you wanted to use a copyright protected work commercially, then you'd have to get the permission of the copyright owner, either them just saying yes, or you paying them a licensing fee in order to use the work in question. Now, that's really softened to some degree, because the Supreme Court has been pretty explicit and lower courts as well have been pretty explicit that um, commercial speech is not necessarily unprotected speech, right? I mean, so one arguably positive um, side effect of the um, falling, gradual fall into desuetude of the commercial speech. Desuetude, he said. Desuetude. (laughs) <laughs> is is that it has made you know fair use claims for commercial actors uh, considerably more viable to the point where in many cases uh, people making commercial uses of copyright protected works can make fair use claims so long as they can provide a justification for the use that they're making and 
And I think one of the most fundamental justifications is this risk that we have that people will use copyright protection as a way of controlling speech. And that's really, I think, what people are primarily concerned about, right? There's this assumption that, you know, that Judge Posner would love, right? That copyright owners are all rational economic actors. No, he, he, who are he's, just he's, he's given that up, but go ahead. He's, he's right, interested right. in all that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, like the background assumption of copyright law is yeah. that copyright owners are rational economic actors. And therefore, if you want to use the work, all you have to do is negotiate with them for the appropriate licensing fee. Now, as I like to observe, um, I know a lot of artists and, uh, if anything, artists are even less rational than uh, than everyone else. And the idea that somehow all you have to do is, you know, negotiate with the copyright owner in order to reach a, a kind of a, a market clearing uh, deal as to what the licensing fee is going to be is pretty clearly false, right? I mean, people use copyright or try to use copyright protection all the time in order to prevent people from using the works that they own in ways that they disapprove of. And, we, you know, we've seen that in a political context all the time, right? Like songwriters, for example, will say, I don't I don't believe in Donald Trump. I don't want Donald Trump using my right. music at right. his campaign event. And, you know, I think the fundamental problem there is, you know, like, I don't particularly like Donald Trump either. But using music at a campaign event has, you know, has speech relevant sort of value. And do we want people using copyright protection to limit or circumscribe the ability of people to engage in that kind of expressive activity, right? That may not be the most troubling situation, right? But there are a lot of other ones that are, right? I mean, imagine the Martin Luther King Foundation said, you can only use the I have a dream speech in contexts that say nice things about Martin Luther King, right. but not ones that say critical things. Well, that's a problem. If the government was trying to do that itself, we would say that's pretty clearly viewpoint discrimination, right? But when copyright owners do it, they can only do it because the government is there with the cudgel backing them up. Right. And so hold, hold on, Brian, hold on. Go, wait, wait, going back to Trump. Sorry. I, I, and you're yeah. going very fast and I'm not fast on these issues. Going back to Trump. Why wouldn't his why wouldn't um, let's say he uses a Bruce Springsteen song, you know, or, or two thirds of a Bruce Springsteen song. Mm-hmm. And Springsteen says that dilutes my song because because my audience hates Trump. And if he uses mm-hmm. it, it's going to cost me money. Yeah. So, so in theory, copyright doesn't care about that, right? The copyright relevant question would be one of the exclude, because copyright just thinks of works of authorship as another kind of property, right? Right. So it's certain exclusive rights, which are only exercisable by the copyright owner or with the permission of the copyright owner. And one of those is the right of public performance. Right. So the right of public performance says that only the copyright owner can perform a work public. Lots of exceptions, but we can just kind of leave it broad for now. So what copyright would say is that um, you can't publicly perform this work of authorship without the permission of the copyright owner. Now, normally that would mean you pay them and then they give you permission, but they don't have to give you permission at all. Right. They can just say, no, flat. No, you can't use it, period. I don't want you to use it. Now, it's complicated in a musical context because there are limitations on the public performance right that make it difficult for uh, the copyright owners to effectively assert those rights in this particular context. But those same limitations, for example, wouldn't apply to the Martin Luther King speech because it's, it's, it's not the right kind of work of authorship. It's a literary work rather than a musical work. So 
then that that kind of performance exception isn't isn't okay. there. All right. Anyway. Okay. Well, we have to move on. I could talk about this for the next three hours, but I want to make just two observations about what you just said. Uh, just for every, um, it seems to me, as a total layperson who knows no more than the person on the street on this, Springsteen should be able to forbid Trump from using his song, or for that matter, some. Con- singer should prohibit Biden from using his song, whatever. Um, but I don't think the King family should have say over a public speech given to 100,000 people. That's also a huge part of historical, the country's history. And, I, and, and, and historical exception, I think, is out there somewhere, but I don't want to go into it. Second thing I want yeah. to just make sure the world understands is, because you said it, is Posner walked away from the rational actor a long time ago. And came to realize that the whole premise of law and economics, that people who act rationally, isn't true. So I want to make sure everyone yeah. understands that. All right. Brian. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so just, just if I may, copyright law itself, at least doctrinally, has not, <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah. And uh, a lot yeah. of copyright doctrine is premised on the idea that um, the markets will resolve the problem themselves. Yeah. And they, they don't seem to do a very good job of it's, it. I, now, now I kind of want to go study it and learn about it and teach it. That was, I mean, <laughs> anyway, okay. So. I have said on this podcast before, and this is meant as a total compliment to you. I hope it will be taken that way by everybody listening and watching. Um, In law generally, I can only speak to my part of law, con law, federal courts, federal jurisdiction, but I'm told by others it's true there. Saying something truly original that isn't stupid is really, really hard. (laughs) And when someone does that, I think it it should be celebrated. Um, I think I've had one original idea in my life that wasn't about law, that wasn't really stupid. Um, and that, and we're coming along on that one. The, the public is coming along slowly. Um, in your case, you have some views about plagiarism that I've never seen anywhere before. It doesn't mean they don't exist before, but I've never seen them. I think that, and, and they're definitely not stupid. Whether they're persuadable or not, we'll find out in a minute. But I read your plagiarism stuff last night and, um, I went from no way to probably not to maybe, to okay, to maybe, oh my God, he might be right. <laughs> Give us your general bottom line thesis about plagiar- about plagiarism. Right. Well, so my, the, the bottom line for me is I think we have to think of plagiarism like, or plagiarism norms, like we think about copyright uh, protection as just a means to an end, right? It's not intrinsically good. It's just uh, a set of policies that we adopt that uh, are intended to achieve some kind of normative goal. And they either do or they don't succeed at achieving those goals. Now, in practice, we adopt all kinds of normative values around the, the the rules themselves that I think often occlude for us the ability of those rules to achieve the goals that we think they're there for in in the first place. And I think that's especially true when it comes comes to plagiarism norms, largely for historical reasons. Right. So copyright law grew out of commercial activity and is still in many respects tied fundamentally to commercial activity. In other words, copyright law came into existence when it became commercially valuable and important for the people producing works of authorship in a commercial context to exert certain kinds of control over who could produce them and who couldn't, that that facilitated their ability to make private arrangements amongst themselves that would sort of limit market failures and reduce transactions costs. All those kinds of things that we're always trying to do in a kind of economic policy context. Plagiarism norms actually long predate 
copyright by thousands and thousands of of years and arose in a very different, but I would argue still economic, just um, non-monetary economic context, right? So plagiarism norms arose out of the desire of authors to control their economic interest in the works of authorship they produce in relation to whatever market happened to be out there. And if we think about plagiarism norms as effectively you know, being designed to do the same kinds of things that copyright law was intended to do, just respecting different economic interests. I think a lot of the um, criticisms that we can levy against the efficiency of copyright law can also be levied against plagiarism norms. And the problem is that we've so heavily normativized or moralized plagiarism norms that it's very hard for people to think critically about what they're really for and what they're supposed to accomplish. And I also think people tend to have um, really kind of reductive ideas about what plagiarism norms uh, actually do and what they say that they actually do. Real quick, before, before we get to that, yeah, I, I want your bottom line first, then work back. Because I think people yeah, listening yeah. and watching, do the bottom line first, then go back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so, so my bottom line with plagiarism norms is that we should be saying, what do we actually want them to accomplish? What do we think they're for? And whatever we think that is, we should take that seriously, right? So if we mean it, that the purpose behind plagiarism norms are really, I would flip the other way around to say the purpose behind attribution. Yes. For example, yes. is really what plagiarism is fundamentally is copying without attribution. So if the purpose of attribution is really to help readers better understand the nature of what it is that they're consuming, then we should be asking what's relevant to readers and what do readers actually care about, you know, and what actually achieves that goal. If we're concerned about like reputational distributional effects, then we can think about those when it comes to attribution norms as well. But I think if we took seriously the, the goals of uh, engaging in these kinds of legal or more likely or more, more typically extra legal sorts of enforcement, we might think very differently about what those norms look like in practice than the norms that we kind of currently have instantiated. So if you were the king of University of Kentucky, and I'm willing to make you king of University of Kentucky, by the way, if you're willing to be the king of the University of Kentucky and you could rewrite the honor code rules for the law school of the University of Kentucky. Um, and someone hands in, or someone writes a, pay, a law review note for the University of Kentucky that has six paragraphs verbatim from a prior article, verbatim, um, without attribution. Under your honor code, would that person get, assuming proper notice and everything, of course, would that person mm. get in trouble? Should that person get in trouble? Right. Well, so the first thing I would do would be to distinguish between the educational enterprise and the scholarly enterprise. So I actually don't think it's very helpful to use the term plagiarism at all when it comes to students, because students aren't producing public facing work, typically. Right. So the, to the extent that what we're concerned about is student work and student learning, I think the question we should always be asking is what helps students pedagogically become more knowledgeable and advance their ability to achieve the kind of educational goals that we're trying to 
instill in them. And in many cases, I think engaging in copying of various kinds is actually very ed- ed- educationally beneficial, you call, you call especially in a You, you called it something in your, in your paper, which I really like the term for. What's the term for? The, uh, uh, oh, patch writing. Yes. Patch writing. That's a term I, I borrowed from, <laughs> from, uh, from an English professor. Did you ask? Who kind of... <laughs> Who has a, a kind of heterodox view on, on English composition, which I think is obviously correct. And I think it's even more obviously correct in a law school setting, right? I mean, for me, the great irony of, of law school pedagogy is that we impose all these plagiarism norms on the work that our students produce only to send them out into law practice, where if you're not plagiarizing, you're committing malpractice. Define right? that. I Wait, mean, stop, oh, stop right there. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Plagiarism. Stop right there. If you're not plagiarizing, you're committing malpractice. Flesh that out, please. Right. Well, think about it, right? You write a brief. Do you sit down and write a brief from scratch? No, you go look at precedents that are briefs on the, on the same issue and you borrow the parts that are relevant and valuable, right? If you're borrowing a, a paragraph or a section from a previously drafted brief, do you cite to the brief? No, because it's not authoritative of anything. Nobody cares what another advocate said. It's just either a functional argument or it's not a, a functional argument. Why do you attribute? You attribute only because it makes your argument more persistent persuasive, right? Because it shows that it's an opinion of a disinterested third party rather than an advocate in uh, on, on the same effective side as you in in a different, so, in a different so for, case. For and likewise, for, judges judges plagiarize all the time, right. right? I mean, if we take plagiarism norms seriously, you know, like having your law clerk draft an opinion and putting your name on it, I mean, that's prima facie plagiarism. The judge didn't <laughs> write it, the law clerk wrote it, right? If you, you give the judge a, a, a model order and the judge adopts it, you don't say, oh my God, the judge has plagiarized me. You say, hallelujah, we got exactly what we wanted. When, when, I, when, I, when I started legal practice in 1986, which which is a whole other sad development of my age. Um, we had this thing called canned briefs. There were no computers back then, basically. And you there's a there's a huge file room at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, huge file room. And you would go there, and there were tons of briefs on many subjects. And if you found one that helped, you would in fact copy it, and you would in fact not attribute it to it. Oh, of course. Why? What's the point of attribute? Nobody cares about the attribution. They care about whether or not it's an effective argument. Right. And you don't want to reinvent the wheel. And, and this is even more true in transactional practice. Right. I mean, think about it. If you go out and your client says, OK, we need an agreement with respect to this particular deal. And you say, well, you know, I could just use this agreement that everyone else has used for the last decade. But that would be plagiarism. So I'm going to go out and draft a brand new <laughs> agreement from scratch. I mean, that's all right. That but, would go, be okay, disaster. So go, but go back to the student. Go back to the student. then. So, so, right? so what should happen to a student, assuming we all know the rules in advance? What should happen to a student who copies three paragraphs verbatim with footnotes from a prior piece without attribution? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think the concern for me is really, is the student effectively learning anything? And is the work product that they've generated by virtue of this copying effective and useful work product? If so, then I think we ought to be asking ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish by punishing or even getting upset? about what the student is doing if it has pedagogical benefits. I mean, I I think my bottom line when it comes to students is the only relevant goal is student learning. And plagiarism norms are bad and shouldn't be enforced 
insofar as those plagiarism norms are inconsistent with maximizing student learning. Because student learning is what's valuable. The plagiarism norms, if anything, are just a means to that end. When I was, right? in, when I, when, when I was in law school at Vanderbilt in 1983, our editor-in-chief of the Law Review, who also had a clerkship with the chief judge of the Sixth Circuit and job offers from Latham and Watkins and Shermer and Sterling, it was found out that he plagiarized his law review note and then a series of events happened and he had to leave law school in the third year. He's now running the world as president of a huge bank. I won't go into that right now. Um, he's admitted, he's admitted, he's admitted that he plagiarized. Um, but I was thinking yeah. his whole life is different under your, in your world because his whole life would be different in, in your world. Um, but Brian, so I assume you would agree. I really want to push on this. Um, I assume you would agree that a student who hands in a paper that's going to be graded and says, you asked me to write about originalism as it's really practiced in the world. And he writes, I've read all of Siegel's blog posts, all of Siegel's essays and books, and I can't do better than he did in this particular chapter of his book. Here's his chapter. This is the right answer. Originalism is, is, is a myth. It's an article of faith. It has nothing to do with the real world. Uh, I want an A. Yeah. That's not an yeah. A, right? Well, I mean, I guess my feeling would be like, what are we trying to accomplish when we give the student the assignment? And more than that, what are we trying to accomplish when we give students grades, right? So, I mean, if, if really what this is all about is ordinarily ranking our students <laughs> and providing uh, providing businesses who might hire them with a convenient heuristic for which students are most desirable, I mean, I guess that's a value that we could find morally impressive and uh, worth advancing. I guess I don't find that all that compelling, personally. You know, I mean, that strikes me as a little bit venal, frankly. Um, and <laughs> and so I, I guess, you know, from that perspective, you know, if, if, if I don't see the superstructure as being something that's worth respecting, then I don't see why the kind of knock on effects of imposing that superstructure should be something that I give any more moral value. Right. Now, when it, when it comes to, you know, copying, and especially, and I think where the plagiarism questions become more interesting is when we stop talking about verbatim copying, which I think is not typically what people are primarily concerned about when they kind of talk about plagiarism on the margins. What they're concerned about is uh, people borrowing material and then reworking it or reusing it in a different context without providing attribution to the source from which they took it. And for me, that's just a way of asserting uh, an ownership, a property interest. And what what really got me thinking about why this was problematic was that, you know, in copyright law, we explicitly exclude ideas and concepts and abstract ideas from the scope of copyright protection, because we think that those sh should necessarily belong to everyone to use in whatever way they see fit. Of course, you know, our stock and trade is, is ideas, right? And the coin of the scholarly realm is attribution. So it makes us us as academics very upset if somebody uses our ideas without putting our name on them right what, what that means is what we really want is we want ownership of those ideas and i'm not sure that we should be well, let me, okay so let me, let me make let me make it personal and i'm not i'm not going to give you this story out of flattering myself i just it's the closest thing i can come to identifying with it um i don't know in the dark days of the trump presidency at some point uh 
a, a guy whose last name happens to be Siegel, but is not related, is a very famous political science professor, Spath and Siegel, and they 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 they're kind of I think the originators of um, the particular way of looking at the Supreme Court as a political institution. Anyway, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about how terrible the court is, and in the in, and in the beginning of it, he said the court's becoming under a lot of criticism from law, con law professors. This guy Eric Siegel says the court isn't even a court. Now, if he had said I've decided that the court is not a court and its justices aren't judges because they don't take prior law seriously and never attributed it to me in the Washington Post, I think I would have been upset. I'm not talking about legal things, but I think I would have been really upset. Should I not be upset about that? Well, I mean, I, I think if he did question, attribute it to me, so it's okay. But if he hadn't. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I, I would break it into two questions, right? So one for me is, you know, should you or do you have a right to be upset? I mean, I'm not one to tell people what feelings they should have. I mean, you should feel whatever way you, you feel and that's your own business. I think the more interesting question is, should you be able to compel someone to attribute it to you because that's what plagiarism norms are really about right it's not about saying you know i have feelings and my feelings have been hurt the question is when can you kind of bring down the force of big scholarship or big academia on someone who's done something of which you disapprove namely failing to attribute something that you believe you own to you and in effect punish them for having engaged in that behavior. I mean, in effect, plagiarism norms um, sort of uh, exist as an extra legal form of criminal punishment, as it were. That yeah, yeah. So, 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 so in this world, if he had done that in, in more than a few sentences and I complained to the Washington Post, my guess is they would make him or they would they would do something. And then I think his peers would look at him and go, what are you doing? And I yeah. take and, and 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 let me just explain where you got me in your article, <laughs> where you absolutely captured me, because it's relevant to this. We hold students to a completely different standard than we hold academics to. And that just can't be right. So that's where you got me. So go ahead and explain yeah. that. And then we got to move on to other things. Yeah. Well, we hold students to incredibly stringent standards and punish them incredibly severely for engaging in activity that, you know, ultimately, I think we have a tendency to excuse or at least minimize when it comes to scholarly peers. For me, what that really does is underscore the extent to which plagiarism norms are not an anti-hierarchy measure, but actually a pro-hierarchy yeah. measure. Yeah. Plagiarism norms are actually the way we replicate hierarchy by creating property interests and in ideas, right? I mean, like, for example, like, you know, everyone's been complaining lately about, you know, the, the top 10 scholars in various fields. And they'll say, gosh, these lists are really incredibly undiverse. I'm like, well, my response is, of course they are, <laughs> right? Because we have scholarly norms that enable people to claim ownership of ideas Right. And then force everyone else who wants to talk about ideas to also talk those ideas to also talk about them. Right. So what do our plagiarism norms do? They replicate the exact same hierarchies that already exist within our academic disciplines. Right. I mean, they're a tool for accomplishing that goal. And we just kind of dress them up as if they're morally justified when what they're really doing is imposing the same kind of uh, inequalities that that have existed since time immemorial. Okay. 
Um, that's just, I mean, it's just so interesting, Brian, and it's such a brave uh, part of your scholarship. But I'm not letting you off the hook. I am sorry. And I don't, mm-hmm. you don't strike me as somebody running for office. So no, I'm going no. Well, I keep, I keep trying to get people to plagiarize me and no one will do it. <laughs> I want, I, I'm going to. I'm. I'm going to stick. To, I, I'm going to make you answer the question. You get assigned by your dean to rewrite the honor code at the University of Kentucky, and you are, and and part of your job. And you're the king. You're the king of plagiarism or not? You get to decide. What does the honor code look like for students at the University of Kentucky? Right. I mean, I think. The way that I would frame it for students would be to say, you have an obligation to be honest with us about what you've done and why you've done it. And we have an obligation to be honest with you about what our expectations are, why those are our expectations, and why we think those expectations are justified and what we expect them to accomplish and how they're consistent with the goals of this educational institution vis-a-vis your education and what we're actually training you for, right? So I, mean, I, I would frame it as a duty of, of honesty on, on all parties, right? Not just on students to observe the rules or be in trouble, but on students to be active participants in the, their own learning process and in creating the norms that govern what it is that the expectations we place on You're the still mark, running for right? office. Would it be against the Brian Fry honor code for a student to rewrite six paragraphs in a 25-page paper without attribution, changing commas, ands, and buts? Yes or no? Probably not, depending on the circumstance, right? I would look at it as, did the work product that the student produced satisfy the criteria of the assignment that they were given? And if they did, then what's the problem? I don't know. It just feels wrong. <laughs> I don't know, but it feels wrong. We I, almost have I mean, the art. We got to move as, on. As, as, as a great philosopher once said, Eric, is our children learning? <laughs> I urge everybody uh, to read Brian's scholarship on this. It is, as I said before, it is fascinating, provocative, not stupid, and incredibly original, which is ironic given that what I'm praising you for is exactly the opposite of plagiarism. All right. Um, Brian, one of the things I just love about uh, everybody should follow Brian and his wife, Maybell, on Twitter. And I should have said at the beginning, I, um, you, you guys got, you guys have been together not that long, but she's now teaching at Tulane. And I know you're going back and forth between Louisiana and Kentucky. I hope everybody's okay. Hope your house is okay. All that stuff. I, I hanging in there, I hope. Oh yeah, we're, we're good. We, we weathered the, the hurricane, no problem. Uh, but evacuated, uh, for the power outage. Okay. We're, we're, on, we're on our way home. Soon. Excellent. Okay. I'm glad you're safe. Um, all right. So we're going to, I want to end this um, with, a pre, with a discussion about um, legal education because ever since, before I met you, um, I, I always thought that you had this comedic, skeptical, mad genius, mad, mad kind of uh, view on legal education, which I just love. So um, I want to get – we're going to disagree about law reviews. But before we get to law reviews – what are some of the biggest problems of legal education as you see them? Um, well, I think it's too expensive. I think it's too hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's too bound up with uh, expectations that aren't geared toward student learning. Um, I think it's kind of antiquated in a lot of bad ways and resistant to change 
in ways that I think are really unfortunate. I mean, I think a lot of other people speak to many of these problems more eloquently than I can. I mean, I think we've done a poor job, unfortunately, of adapting legal education to underserved communities. We've done a poor job of adapting legal education to the needs of people with disabilities. Um, I think we've done a poor job with legal education of even kind of helping students find themselves in a learning environment that they find conducive to kind of development of their own intellectual capacities in a lot of ways. We kind of just stick to doing things the way we've we've always done them. Um, Mabel likes this phrase that I like to use is uh, um, uh, that legal academics know how to solve market failures in every market except the one we control. Um, <laughs> So we always complain about legal education, but we never seem to do anything about it, even though we've built all of our careers on telling everyone else how they should fix the institutions and markets that they're participating in. Um, You know, it's kind of like, you know, heal or heal thyself, as as it were. Um, That was beautifully said. I don't don't think anybody can say it better than you just said it, frankly. frankly. Um, And, you know, I've gotten involved in this a little bit. Everyone knows this because... Um, thanks to a um, Adam Feldman, um, who is a great data person, because I am a negative da- data person. I destroy data when it comes into me. Um, you know, we found out that as of 2019, 95% of the professors at the U.S. News top 10 law schools uh, with American law degrees came from the top 10 law schools. And I believe 50%, 50 from Harvard and Yale. Yeah. That has yeah. to be and a I- terrible thing, right? And I think that this just really reflects the extent to which in the legal profession, we care for better, for worse, I think for worse, so deeply about hierarchy and pedigree in ways that I think are really counterproductive. Because the reality is everybody knows that law school admission is determined almost entirely by LSAT scores. Now, you know, maybe there's good things or bad things about using LSATs for law school admissions. You know, people argue that they're a reasonably good predictor of first year performance in law school, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever they're a good predictor for, they're not a good predictor. And they aren't designed to be a good predictor at all of potential for legal academia. And yet, as a practical matter, as I think you and Adam have really nicely illustrated, in your work, we're effectively hiring law professors as a knock-on effect of what people's LSAT scores were, which is bananas. Insane, insane. Because there's no there's no reason to think there's any kind of useful correlation between the two. We've set up an institutional structure that makes it cripplingly difficult for people who don't come into the academic hiring process without that kind of pedigree to get any job, let alone a job that adequately uh, reflects and um, and is sort of suited to their actual capacities. And and the the deeper problem for me is we we don't seem to care. We really don't. Right. And that, so what amazed me about this is I have friends at Harvard and Yale, progressive friends, who I really respect, and one of whom is a big mentor. I mean, I just respect them a lot. They do a lot of good things. On this issue, their response was, well, that's bad, and we probably shouldn't do it, but hiring is hard, and we can do all of our hiring from that from the top 10 law schools, so why would we spend so much extra? And I'm like, you would never say that about race or gender, but you are saying it about class. Because the LSAT clearly has a class component. And so when you use the LSAT that way, you are making a class-based distinction. And there was a lot of – indifference is too strong, 
but certainly not enough energy there to change it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, and, and I think ironically, in, in a deeper way, they are in effect saying it about race and gender True. as well. True. Because if, if you don't think that race and gender and a whole range of different personal circumstances are affecting people's decisions about what they're going to do when they enter the legal education, I mean, I got news for you. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, as as a practical matter, you know, once again, this is a filtration mechanism that strongly favors people who come into the process with certain kinds of advantages baked in. And it's no, it's no secret that, as you say, the pedigree plays a big role. Also, you know, people who come from families of law professors seem to magically end up becoming (laughs) law professors. I don't think that's an accident, right? I I mean, you know, a lot of those, there's a lot of intangibles that go into that career path and sort of steer people in different directions along the way. And I think we like to pretend that it's a lot more equitable than it really is. And and then I have one more point and a final question um, about law reviews. So especially when we're talking about Harvard and Yale, when the answer is it's just too hard, and I say you, Harvard has like a multi-billion dollar endowment, you know, most law schools have endowments of two, maybe, maybe, maybe 200 million. You know, law, Harvard Law School has freaking unlimited money. Unlimited. There's no limit on their money. There really isn't. They could spend the extra money to try to figure out how not to use the LSAT as a proxy for being a law professor at Harvard Law School. I, I sorry to rant, but I assume you agree with that. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, realistically, you know, like my pie in the sky proposal would be we should just take everyone who wants to go to law school, ask them what geographic area they want to be in law school at, and then just assign them to law schools randomly. <laughs> that's from the next podcast. That's when we're, that's when you're on again. Um, okay. Law reviews fairly quickly because we're running out of time. Um, but I have to start with a story um, because I think you and I disagree about this. I, I think the very worst thing about student-run law reviews um, is how it affects the careers of non-elite law professors. But we'll get to that in a minute. So two things. One, my oldest friend from high school is a Ph.D. in epidemiology from Johns Hopkins. Um, he's a scientist. He thinks peer review has enormous problems. I'm not naive about this. I understand how... Peer review is not perfect by any means. How it can be political, even when it's supposed to be anonymous. I, I'm not, I'm not a la-di-da about that. I understand that. But he cannot believe that second-year law students are the ones who decide what articles go into Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and Chicago, much less Georgia State and the University of Kentucky. And then, and then one more thing. When I was sending out my tenure piece in 1995, um, it got accepted by George Washington. This is before... before Computers were really played a lot in a lot of ways. Anyway, Michigan wanted to know, again, I, I asked Michigan to expedite it, and they said, where was your offer from? And on the phone, and I, that's how it worked back then, I said, George Washington, and they went, uh. And I said, what do you mean, uh? And they said, well, don't worry about it. I said, no, really, what do you mean, uh? And they said, well, I've been better for some Georgetown. And I said, this article is about a Georgetown law professor who I'm criticizing, who you can call and ask about whether he thinks it's a good article, and I'm criticizing him in this article. No, we don't do that. What do you mean you don't do that? We don't call professors. But you care what their students think? Okay, 
You get the idea, right? Um, yeah. it, it is monstrous that uh, that someone who works for five years at a school like Kentucky or Georgia State and wants to leave that school. I've never wanted to leave Georgia State, never for one second. But if I did, then where I get published matters more than the books I write, which is insane. Um, and that affects, a, and that also has a race and class element, not for me, but for others. We this is an insane system. Tell me why I'm wrong. Sure. I, I, I actually don't, I don't totally disagree with you. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think you're right. One thing I would point out is that in both cases, your friend and the law review system, what we're complaining across the, across the board is actually peer review, right? I mean, the law review system is also a de facto peer review system. You're just saying, I don't like the particular set of peers we've chosen to make the decisions. My point would be, we just should get, get rid of pre-publication peer review entirely. And we don't need a selection process anymore, right? We can just shift to a post-publication peer review process where in effect, people read the articles and decide whether or not they think they're good or not and talk about the articles they think but, they're but good. But how does Harvard decide? But, but wait, how does Harvard Law Review decide which... We, we don't need them anymore, <laughs> right? The era of law reviews is over, right? Look, my point is law reviews are a, a social technology that came into existence because it solves a technological and economic problem that existed at the time, which was that the, the transactions costs, the costs associated with the publication and distribution of legal scholarship were high. Right. I mean, receiving the articles, printing the articles, distributing the law journals, that was a very costly enterprise. And you needed a filter in order to not, you know, to only spend that, those, expend those resources on what it was valuable and that people actually wanted to consume. Well, today, the costs of, of producing and distributing legal scholarship are literally zero, right? <laughs> the, 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 the purpose of this technology is gone. We should be celebrating that right this is a technology a social technology that is now obsolete and we should bin it right i mean if harvard and yale and stanford were serious what they would do is come together collectively and say we've had a good run we're now obsolete we're going <laughs> to fold up and devote our resources to doing something more worthwhile right and we could we could just eliminate them entirely and and frankly i think it would be good for everyone involved right it would eliminate a hierarchy that's both incoherent and also pernicious, right? Plus, it would create a situation where we could evaluate the quality of scholarship based and, and invest our time and energy in evaluating the quality of scholarship based on reading and evaluating the actual scholarship itself rather than the letterhead of the journal in or the masthead of the journal it appeared in. And when it comes to students, in fact, our some of our very strongest students who are the ones who end up doing law review and wasting huge amounts of their time on stuff that everyone knows is busy work, right? We could redirect their energies to doing stuff that would be more educationally valuable for them, right? We should be taking our law students and training them how to do valuable things like learning how to produce their own scholarship with professors as opposed <laughs> to, you know, doing it on their own, right? Rather than doing site checks, have them do original research or help professors do original 
research, right? Anything else, really, I think, could be more pedagogically valuable to the, those very students who are the ones that, you know, have the most, or a lot of the ones who have some of the most potential. So I just see it as a huge missed opportunity and, and a huge kind of, t kind of time sink and waste of resources that could easily be directed. But we're just we're, we're so invested in maintaining the system as it has always existed that it's impossible for people to see that any real alternative is, is possible. So instead we get these proposals to fix the law reviews, which amount to, frankly, I'll be blunt, Eric, nothing more than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. So, so that was brilliant. I agree with every syllable of it. So we don't disagree. And I, and, and we got to go, but I, I want to say one thing and I'm trying to figure out a way to say this. That is not insulting to other people. I will probably fail, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, this is like my 30. I don't know what number this is. I've done over 30 podcasts. And I've been very lucky to have the giants of constitutional law on this. People like Michael McConnell and Jack Balkin and um, Adam uh, Winkler, Adam Liptak in the greenhouse. Um, you know, people with national reputations of such that you and I don't share. Um, and they're all wonderful and they're all great. I love them all and I was impressed by all of them. But Brian, I want to say that um, I, I think the way you think is as brilliant as anybody I've ever met. Um, and it doesn't mean, I'm still not totally hook, line, sinker on your plagiarism stuff, um, but um, I wish that our system rewarded people who think the way you do. Not that being a, shared, a named professor at the University of Kentucky isn't an amazing thing. It is. Um, and I'm so fortunate to be at Georgia State. Um, but if the world were fair, um, I don't know. You'd have Jack Balkin's chair. Jack, I'm ser I'm serious about that. Um, all right. I love Jack Balkin, just for the record. Um, okay. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. It was okay. such a pleasure. You're too kind, Eric. I really yeah. appreciate it. I meant every it word of it. It's really true. Bye. And I always enjoy talking. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye.